as we get back into this series, the series is called Out of Bounds, okay? Out of Bounds. How do we talk about the things uh, that we can't talk about or that we, you know, I, I say sometimes we're not allowed to talk about? How do we talk about those things? And, and sometimes there is a little bit of a uh, churchy feel sometimes that, um, you know, well, why should we, right? Why, why would we take time at the church to talk about, uh, you know, uh, racism or, uh, you know, homo, uh, homosexuality and pansexuality and, um, you know, parental rights in schools and education and government buildings and how do we, you know, manage the tension there? Uh, how, why would we talk about the transgender movement and things that are going on? Like, that doesn't really seem like we should as a church, you know, just stick to preaching, Matt, just stick to sermons, right? There is, there is some of that. And part of that is because, again, the tension is that, well, if we don't say the right thing, if we don't come across the right way, if we don't align with sort of the majority view or the majority opinion, um, you know, then we're just, you know, we're bigots, we're prejudiced, we're, we're uh, homophobic or transphobic or, you know, we're just uh, anti-woke and, you know, all those kind of things, you know, that we're just basically idiots who don't know anything. And that's, you know, that's sometimes how you're cast aside if you don't really have the same opinion as what, what quote-unquote, everyone else has. So it brings about this idea that this is, these topics are sort of out of bounds, especially for those who are of uh, conservative or traditional, or at least from that standpoint, a Christian uh, background. And so we go to, oh, it's gorgeous. That's beautiful, really. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, so we're going to build the church right here. <laughs> and no, I'm just, just kidding. They're working on it. <laughs> They're working on it. So uh, if you go back to the slide ahead of time, go up to there to the slide ahead of time. I know she's working on it. Um, when, when this idea that we're not allowed to talk about it, I just want you to hear the words, we disagree, okay? Matter of fact, let's just say it out loud together. You ready? We disagree. Okay, boy, that was good. You guys, you know, you're on the ball this morning. This is an important concept, okay? Because a lot of times in our culture, we're not even, we're not even allowed sometimes to disagree anymore. But this is, you'll have to go back and listen to last week. This is a big deal when it comes to the fact that we do. We, we are going to disagree with some things, especially when it comes to things that are opposing the Word of God, especially when it comes to, to opposing truth. We're going to disagree, and that's okay, all right? The issue is how do we disagree and how do we engage in some of these conversations? So let me keep uh, going with a very quick <laughs> highlight of last week. These weeks build on each other, so if this is your first Sunday, I apologize. You'll have to go back last week to fill in some of the gaps. I talked about the importance of our worldview, and this says 51%, this is from a Barna Group study, 51% of Americans actually say they have a biblical worldview, right? They say, well, no, I have a biblical worldview. But when they're asked following questions about their worldviews, it goes on to say that only 6% of American adults actually hold to this biblical worldview. They, you know, they, the, many, many more people think they have a worldview, but only 6% actually hold to this worldview. So many other worldviews, as we talked about last week, there's so many other worldviews that kind of hijack just Christian thinking about the world and the way things should be and the way things ought to be and how the world is. This pluralism, okay, this pluralism in, uh, in worldviews, is driven by this sort of my truth source, your truth source argument. 
that, that you know, you've heard me talk about my truth and your truth, and we kind of argue that. What's happened in the last probably decade or so is that it's kind of shifted. It's been a, it's a, it's been a way to justify relativism, is that we've decided now that it's no longer you and me in an argument. It's, you know, it's the channel you watch that disagrees with the channel I watch. Right? It's the follower, the blog follower and, and influencer that you listen to and read versus the blog and the, and, the, and, the, and the Instagram follower that I listen to and read their articles. It's our truth source. And the problem with this isn't just the, the relativism and the universal nature of it. The problem is it also removes accountability. It removes accountability and it removes responsibility, which is why you don't see anybody making apologies anymore. Right? They're not wrong. No one's ever really wrong because their truth source changed, right? Their truth source changed its mind. So when the truth source changes its mind, you just go along with whatever the truth source was. Oh, I know it used to be you had to bury a hole and bury yourself for COVID for four, 14 weeks and all that. But my truth source now says you only have to be in, you know, you have to barely sit in your car by yourself for 30 minutes, you know? I, I know it's different, but my truth source says this. So, you know, it's not like anybody was wrong. They're just, that's what my truth source says. A true source has changed. Well, the reality is, is that that's what we're dealing with in our culture, especially when it comes to these worldviews and the pluralism that comes from them. But there's great news for Christians, which is that we have a truth source. Like we do, we have a truth source. And, and you know what, guys? It never changes. It never changes. All right? It doesn't go with the shifting sands of culture. Our truth source doesn't change. And we, this was our theme verse for the series. We told you this last week, 2 Timothy 3, 16. All scripture is inspired by God. Uh, NIV or KJV says it's God breathed. Such a cool, such a, such a cool phrase. And it's useful. What does it do? It teaches us what is, say the word out loud. Yeah. And it makes us realize what is, say that word out loud. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. In our lives. So there's a purpose for this <clears throat> incredible truth source. It only teaches what is true, but it, in, in terms of how it reflects to us, it shows us what is wrong. It, it corrects us when we're wrong, and it teaches us to do right. Keep going. God uses it, meaning uses the word, uses this process of it teaching you the right and wrong and teaching truth. It uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. It's for believers. It's for, it's for the followers of Christ. This is, this is now. We don't, we're not lost in a sea of just opinions of, of what might or might not be true. We have a true source available to us. It's the Word of God, and it doesn't change. That's the great, great news. And as we looked at a few verses last week, as we just, again, kick-started off this idea of how do we engage in some of these more difficult sort of landmines of cultural conversations, what is our call? What are we charged to do according to Scripture? So last week, the conclusion was, well, we're called to speak the truth in love. We have to know what the truth is. We're called to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15, while expressing kindness and tolerance and patience, because that's what God does with us. When we stand opposed to his word, he, he's kind and he's tolerant and he's patient. Yet, all of this, while we stand firm or while we're standing firm in disagreement to an opposing belief or truth. There is something about being confident in your convictions, being confident in what you're standing in. You're standing in something that might, you know, someone might be opposing, they're opposing belief or truth. You have to stand in disagreement. You have to be willing to say, listen, man, I love you. We disagree. We are going to disagree. And yet, 
I still have to find ways to speak the truth in love. It's on me to speak truth in love and to be kind, tolerant, and patient as grace is expressed and as things work out. So, last week I ended this with this question, how in the world do we do this? And the short answer, best answer, is Jesus, right? How in the world do we do this? Now, I basically said last week, if you didn't ask this question last week, it's because you, you really aren't planning on changing anything, or you just don't care, okay? You just don't care. You don't care. You're perfectly satisfied with how you're currently sort of joining the noise with culture about, blah, 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 blah. this is wrong, this is right. Yay, go for you, Okay? But for any of you who want to change it, any of you who want to see something happen and actually have a voice and actually make a difference and actually have an impact, then you are going to have to understand your, not only your true source, but make some decisions about how you align with your beliefs and your convictions with your true source and how you engage in these social, political, and legal landmines of our culture. And the only way to do that is Jesus. So we're going to be looking over the next few weeks at encounters that Jesus had as we engage with some of these. And today we're going to hit about three huge topics. How do you do it? Well, we're going to look again. We're going to look at Jesus. Best example, go to Jesus, right? Best example, go to Jesus. We're going to start in John 1. We're going to, the, the example we're going to give is in John 8, but we're going to start in John 1. We know that John, who was a disciple of Jesus, John wrote his gospel, best we can tell. He was probably late into his 80s and 90s. He was definitely, um, what's the right word? A lot, of, a lot of John 1 is very reflective in language, right? You ever talk to your grandparent or to your older father and you know, they sort of, it's, you know, the, narr- the, the, the chronological narration of things kind of don't matter. Everybody with me? It's one of those things where they just sort of reflect on the summary and the big picture and those things. Well, John kind of presents, you know, he starts talking about God and and him coming to earth, and it's very poetic and it's very reflective in nature. Because John's sitting there and probably either writing or he's, uh, 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 what's the word I'm thinking of there, Dan? He's uh, speaking it and someone else is writing it? Yeah, dictating. There you go. Yeah. Dictating this thought. And I love this. This is where... He says, look, the word, speaking about Jesus, he's already been using this up to this point, became flesh and made his home and made his dwelling among us, made his home among us. And when he says, we have seen his glory, he's talking about we. He's like, we, me and the other disciples, me and the people that I'm with, me and the church. We we saw, we saw his glory, the one and only son who came from the Father, came from God. And I love this particular phrase because he just says, you know, he was full of grace and truth. He was full of grace and truth. Doesn't that sound more like a reflective statement, like he's just thinking about it, and as he just thinks back to his time with Jesus, he's like, you don't understand, we we witnessed the glory of God. And we saw in his life, in the way that he lived, in the way that he expressed himself, we saw the fullness of grace and truth. What a beautiful picture. And yet I know, based on all of Paul's writings and just based on my own life alone, is that most of us as followers of Christ, we struggle to live in the fullness of grace and truth. Why? Because usually we are caught in the tension. We are caught in the tension of grace versus truth. 
Why? Because when somebody's disagreeing with us or they don't, you know, we, we're standing on the truth of the Word of God and we're having to, to, to do this, sometimes we can get so wrapped up in what's true that we are absent of grace. You guys don't know anybody like that, do you at all? Like, not even somebody coming to mind, right? Or we get so wrapped up in the tolerance piece of grace and of love and trying to figure out how we love people and how we express that love to people that we sort of, we're sort of absent truth. You guys aren't thinking of anybody right now, are you? Like, in your mind. Yeah. Why? Because all of us struggle. Just, just hear me. And if you don't struggle with it, man, congratulations for your perfection. I'm so thankful <laughs> that you're here this morning. But most of us struggle. Why? Because there is a, in our mind, in our humanity, in our brokenness, there is a tension. And the best most of us can try to get to is to try to balance it out. Try to balance it out. To be just a little bit of grace here and a little bit of truth here. And, but that's not what we get from Jesus. And okay, so I'm going to read a cookie counter um, that we see that we learn from. Um, but I love this, this particular encounter. You've probably heard it before. But it is just, I just see all of this in Jesus. The fullness of grace and truth. This is in John 8. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple, and he was teaching. The crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. This would have been kind of normal at this point, especially if he was in one place uh, for a few days. And as he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, they brought a woman, we don't ever get this woman's name, just brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Best the best uh, description of this in terms of what uh, scholars believe is that she was, she was literally pulled out of a room. She was literally caught in the moment in the act of adultery, and they just threw her in front of the crowd, just brought her in front of everybody. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Now, it goes on. This is John, again, reflective in nature. says, look, they were trying to trap him. This is the whole goal. They were just trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus instead stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Now, one of the second or third or, I don't know, 15th questions I'm going to ask when I get to heaven. Everybody with me? What were you writing? Because he does it. It says he does it twice. And, you know, I don't know, maybe he's just creative. Maybe he's just, like, you know, making circles and flowers. I have no idea. I don't know what he did. I don't know if it was to throw him off their game. There's lots of scholars that believed he was, he was writing out some specific things, which we'll talk about in a minute. But it, this is just his response. He doesn't even say anything. He just starts, you know. But they kept demanding. Everybody with me? They kept leaning in, man. Jesus, you're going to speak into this. You're going to talk about this. And so he stood up again, and he says, all right. He's like, okay, you want to stone her? Law of Moses says you can stone her. All right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. That's, this is all Jesus says to this conversation. Hey, you without sin, that's, I think that's King James Version, you without sin, throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust, which I just love. <laughs> so Jesus... Well, when the accusers heard this, they began to slip away one by one. And I love this. I love John pointing this out. It was started with the oldest. 
It began with the oldest, primarily because when the older you are, the more sins on your list you've, you can remember, right? And some you can't. Until the only one that was left was Jesus in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one, like didn't even one remain to condemn you, to carry out this judgment and condemn you? And no, Lord, she said. No, no, there's nobody here. Not one stayed. And then Jesus says, well, neither do I. Now, most people just stop reading it at this point. Neither do I. I, I they, they didn't condemn you. I don't condemn you either. Because that's the full of grace, Jesus. But he actually says, neither do I, go and sin no more. You know, short form is stop it. <laughs> right? So here's this example where Jesus is kind of expressing both those muscles. He's, he's living, not in the tension of, but in the fullness of grace and truth. And before I kind of dissect this a little bit more, I want to go back and just remind you quickly so that we can go into our kind of cultural conversations. I want to remind you quickly about what I said last week about convictions and opinions. If you are here, you're already ahead of the game. Let me just briefly remind everybody who wasn't here. Opinions are those things that you love to argue and debate about. You have very little skin in the game. Maybe you have some strong experience and maybe some knowledge that comes behind those opinions, but those, are, those opinions are the things you fight about on Facebook, you fight about on social media, you, you, know, you get into trouble with family when you go see family and you know, your opinions, you know, that's just the way you see things, you're an idiot, you know, you're an idiot, you know what I'm saying, like that's, that's your opinion. Convictions, however, are the things that you actually stand firm in. The word is actually more of the idea of confidence in, regardless of agreement and regardless of consequences. Those are two big deals. You might stand firm in something regardless of whether people agree with you or not, but you might not stand as firm in it if it's not really a conviction and it's just a strongly held opinion, depending on the consequences that you're going to have. So you know it's a conviction when you have this confidence and you have this courage to stand firm regardless of the agreement people have and regardless of the consequences that may come after. And because of that, we have to know where do these things come from? Where do these convictions that we have come from? Well, I already told you, they come from your truth source. But I'll, just, to, just to give you an example, of some of the, I mean, we just talked about a woman caught in adultery. You're talking about a moral dilemma. You're talking about a moral issue. So you have to have some convictions on morals or you wouldn't, have a, you wouldn't be able to stand in judgment of her if you didn't have some convictions. So I obviously, I'm the pastor, I should obviously do this, I want your convictions to be from the Bible, from the truth source, that you have this biblical morality, that when it comes to morality, you have a biblical understanding, not just, a, just, not just some weird verse you found in there where David married 15 people, so you get to, right? Not some weird obscureness. I'm talking about the fullness of Scripture and the fullness of the ideals and instructions of God. Because it may not be fully just a moral issue. It may just be an ideal and an instruction where God's like, don't do this, and you should definitely be doing this. That's ideals and instructions. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love others the way I loved you. See, those are ideals and instructions. 
Oh, yeah, they play themselves out in moral situations, but just understand, this is where I, I believe your convictions should come from. Now, what are they going to do? Well, you're going to also have opinions, and I want you to know that that's okay. And I broke them down into three things, like social ideology is just the way we kind of think social, you know, society, society should just work, right? People should just do this, and people should just do that, and this should be right, and this should be wrong, and everybody kind of has a social ideology, especially your friends, kind of has this idea of what socially should be acceptable and not. Then there are political views, and you guys know this, right? There are political views that kind of align with social things, but you could have the same idea about a social ideology, but be vastly different in political views, because political views are just another thing you have an opinion on. Now, the last one, I, I called it entitlements, but I want you to understand it's only because I couldn't think of a better word. I'm sure Laura, she's a lawyer, she could have helped me with a better word, but you know, I'm thinking like, these are the things that we would call rights. Or, or the legal things, or the things that are law. Like, I mean, we, we have pretty strong opinions on what our rights are, or what our rights should be, or what the Constitution says, or what it doesn't allow. Does that make sense? So these are things that we form opinions around, especially in our culture. Now, knowing this, I want you to go back and just, just take a quick, just remember the story we just read. Jesus in this encounter, he has a biblical moral conviction that adultery is sin. Adultery is wrong, or he wouldn't have said it at the end, go and sin no more. He also wasn't looking for sinners. Now, they're everywhere, obviously, but Jesus didn't show up to the courts that day and say, who in the world can I judge today? Who are all the sinners, right? Who can I hang out to dry? And you guys might even know people that love to do that. Social media is a big, big platform for them. They love to find people on their thread that they completely disagree with, and they just go hunting. They have two hours to kill. Why not? Right? And if they don't find anything juicy, they'll go, they'll go back to the three or four people that they know usually probably said something and jump in on their thread or jump in on their conversation. But Jesus wasn't hunting for this. This was something they came to him. They were demanding it of him. He was pulled into this conversation. They weren't going to do anything illegal. And I want everybody to just take a minute and get past your Western ideology and get past your sort of more modern civil things in your heart. I want you to understand that in this moment in time, this wasn't even a legal issue. They had every right to stone her, kill her, and leave her for dead. And everyone in the temple would have went, deserves it, and walked away, and went about their day. So this wasn't even a legal issue. Now, we can legally get into the argument of, ah, it shouldn't happen in social stuff. You know, we can have a ton of opinions, but we're talking about right here, Jesus didn't even go into the legal issue. He didn't even go into what was socially right or wrong. He goes deeper than that, and he immediately goes to the sin issue. He goes deeper because his moral conviction comes from God, comes from the Father. And he says, look, you can stone her. That's true. You get the legal right to do so. But I want you to know, anybody, let's just do it this way. Anyone who hasn't sinned, go ahead. And he flips the table here, figuratively, and just helps them understand, like, you're kind of coming at this the wrong way. You're, you're starting with a legal argument, and you've lost the conviction. 
you've lost what the Word of God says. And again, we know this. Jesus did not affirm or condone her behavior by not casting judgment on her immediately. He didn't, he didn't affirm that. He wasn't like, good for you. Way to go. You can get away with it this time. We understand. He didn't affirm it. He didn't condone it. And yet both grace and truth were fully present. Let me just bring up a few cultural issues that we deal with, that we struggle with the tension of grace versus truth. And sometimes, and I'm not blaming anybody, but sometimes we don't really know where our convictions are rooted in. We don't know if we have biblical convictions rooted in, in the biblical morality or rooted in ideals and instructions, and we end up having lots of strong-worded and strong-believed debates in the opinions of our social ideology and our political views and our rights and entitlements. First one is women's reproductive rights and the sanctity of life and abortion. There are many arguments for reproductive rights uh, and I do not have time to go into every single argument today, so just understand that I'm not, I'm not minimizing them. I'm just telling you I don't have time to go into all of them. I'm going to give you just a couple quick examples. But you, hopefully you've been around. Hopefully you've heard some of these arguments for women's reproductive rights. Here's a quote from the ACLU. This is the legal, legal stance. No state interest described by fetal rights advocates or advocates has enough force to override a woman's fundamental rights for privacy bodily integrity and self-determination. Until the child, the child is born or brought forth from the woman's body, our relationship with it must be mediated by her. This is from the ACLU. This is part of the, the, the legal battle that's kind of always been happening behind the scenes. States have many, many different um, uh, legal things, but this is kind of the general legal consensus that, that because Basically, the fetus or the, the baby doesn't have any rights outside of the mother, that it's the mother who mediates that. You cannot tell her what to do. You cannot mediate for her what can or cannot be done in her body. There's lots of words that go along with that. Science, like the video said earlier, you know, just a clump of cells, you know, the experts tell us. There is a general consensus that the argument for active living cells growing in the body uh, cannot live or sustain itself outside of the body and therefore cannot be treated as anything other than what you might treat an organ. So the scientific consensus is basically that this group of cells, this cluster of cells, um, cannot, it sustains itself. It's fully growing and sustaining like a tumor. Okay, you all with me? In the body of this woman and has no other thing, and you cannot remove that from her without her mediating it. Because it's like her growing an extra kidney, or growing a tumor, or growing anything else. That's the general consensus around the scientific view, the general scientific, I'll say general scientific view of that, especially, and this is early on, especially when they talk about first trimester versus second trimester versus third trimester. I mean, everybody starts to shift and change and how they view things. This is why 89% of abortions happen in the first trimester. It's one of the reasons, sorry, it's one of the reasons. However, the scientific research also shows, and let's just hear this, it also shows us 
that even at eight weeks, which is within that first trimester, a baby will suck her thumb, um, they will recoil in pain, she will respond to sound, all of his organs are present at eight weeks. Their brain is active already and already dreaming based on what they can tell by scans. They have their own blood, they have their own DNA, and they have a unique fingerprint all to themselves. Which is why the argument for it's just a clump of cells, it's just a, you know, is a hard argument. Because science might look at it this one way if you angle it and squint your eyes and see that it's true. But there's also other things that science shows us and tells us. What does the Bible say? Well, Psalm 139 says, you, he's speaking, this is him speaking to God, you God made all the delicate inner parts of my body and you knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. Oh, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the darkness of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before any single day had passed. There's a lot of activity happening even before, quote unquote, this baby is born, as we would call the unborn. And here's the conclusions. I'm just giving you the conclusions in Scripture in terms of where moral convictions lie for me. God creates life. It's not actually you and me. Now, we can talk about how it happens, which, by the way, we will in a couple weeks. That's a PG-13 Sunday, by the way. We'll talk about how babies are made, but we will. But what you, when you really think about it, it's actually this, from what Scripture tells us, it's actually this beautiful, creative process that we are a part of, but that God actually creates. There's an aspect of everything in Scripture saying that God is the one who creates life. He's the author of life. In Him, we, have, we live and have our being. This is what we read. It continues on. Jeremiah says it this way. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb, and before you were born, I had already set you apart and appointed you as a prophet to the nations. This is to Jeremiah. He's like, before you were even born, I sort of, you know, you had an identity. You had who you are. Keep going. This is in uh, Galatians. Before I was born, God chose me, and he called me by his marvelous grace. Keep going. This is back in the Psalms. I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. Meaning that this is the idea of conception. From the time my mother conceived me, I was already born a sinner, but you desired honesty from the womb. It's a tall order, right? But you were teaching me wisdom there, which is where my brain just gets crazy. Like when you start talking about the brain being active and already dreaming, and that's just crazy. But here's, here's this David just saying, this is all happening before, before the quote-unquote birth of a child. And so when you begin to sort of look at what the Bible says and you start blurring the lines as to what, you know, culture is saying, well, this is a child, this is not a child, this is, you know, a clump of cells, this is an actual baby. When you really pull yourself back from that, you really begin to see that when a child, when the child is lost, even before they're born, it is a loss of life. And therefore, abortion. Abortion is taking a life that God created. 
when we are actively the ones participating in it, we are taking a life that God created. And I say this when I counsel people with miscarriages. You know, a lot of times miscarriages get kind of broken up the same way, like, well, we lost the pregnancy, well, we lost the... And, there's, and I understand some of the emotion to try to guard people's hearts and try to help them along. The problem is, is that the language is sometimes a little bit blurry. And I have to tell people, listen, from what I read in Scripture, like, that's a life that was lost. Now, in miscarriages, it's a life that God, God took, a life that he created. But abortion is taking a life that God created. Now, for me, I could, and this is where you find the arguments happening. When you start looking at the biblical ideal of what it is to be conceived and all the work that's going on and how God views this, you can start getting caught up, right? You can start getting caught up in the truth. And this is where people, where, where they're driven by truth with no grace, continue to plow their way through culture not caring who's left in the wake of this incredible, incredible issue. I mean, I think you saw it in the earlier, like 54% of women who receive abortions actually claim to be Christians because they just didn't feel like they had any other choice. This is where we're called to speak that truth in love. How do we express that kindness and tolerance and patience? We don't go, we don't show up at Latrobe. We don't show up at the abortion center with our hearts filled, ready to condemn those who enter the doors of the abortion clinic. No, that's, I mean, if that's, I mean, anybody who shows up there is wrong in that way. We show up with compassion. We show up with a desire for them to choose life, with a prayer, a heart full with prayer to beseech God, to ask God to intervene. Because this is another truth that drives our convictions. Where sin is, grace abounds. This is a truth that drives our convictions. Go to Romans. God's law was given so that people could see how sinful they were, right? But people sinned more and more. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became, what's the two words there? The more abundant. Basically saying, yes, we do live in a culture of sin and death. We have laws that allow sin and death. And all of that comes from sin. That's where it comes from. Because we are born sinful. And that's a expression and a reaction to the fallen world we live in. But the more and more sin that is present, there's no sin that exceeds God's grace and forgiveness. I have people in my life, I have people close to me that have all had to experience this for, other, for many reasons in terms of experienced abortion. There's people in this church who have experienced abortions. Our heart isn't filled with condemnation for you doesn't change the conviction. Remember, nod your head if you're least with me. doesn't change my conviction. But my desire to be full of grace and truth is not to strike some balance. Not to strike some balance that honestly doesn't exist. We partner with Love Life, and I'm just going to give you four reasons why we partner with Love Life. We partner for these primary reasons. One is because we are devoted to prayer. That's what we do during the week, that's what we do there, and that's what we do at the center. We pray. We pray in the midst of noise. We pray in the silent. We, we just pray that God would work. 
We, we, we support, uh, one of the reasons we love Love Life is because they actually bring support systems. They have free MRIs, uh, they have sidewalk counselors, they have people who are trained and ready to help. They have, um, they have uh, mentors that'll follow up with moms. They have systems in place to find people jobs. Like they have tons of support. That's one of the reasons we love them. They just in the last few years uh, started an adoption process where families are beginning to adopt these children. And if you're not in that place to adopt, you can be a part of what they call adoption communities, which means you get to surrap, you get to support and surround those who choose to adopt. It's phenomenal. But one of the reasons we primary <laughs> we primarily support them and, and, and partner with them is because of choice. <laughs> because we approach this from a standpoint of choice. The majority of people that I've had conversations with that have gone through abortions or almost gone through abortions, every one of you tells you a very similar thing, which is they just didn't see any other options. They just didn't see any other choice. And the reason I show up, the reason the church shows up, is to just pray and say, listen, there is a choice. And we want you to choose life. And we'll do everything we can to help you choose life. Now, do I want abortion to, to be illegal, to end? Yes. Why? Well, because it would reduce the number of abortions. Because of how I view abortions. Will it eradicate abortions? No. I'm not so foolish to think of that. You have to understand that when you start having moral convictions about things like this, then your moral convictions are going to dictate and inform how you have those opinions and where those opinions and views from social and political happen, right? I want to remove the need for abortions. That's where my biblical worldview and my biblical convictions lie. I don't have to accept one thing because I've accepted the other. You start having conversations with people about abortion, it's like, well, what about, you know, we have to have a solution for rape and for when people are forced on things and for unwanted pregnancies and teenagers because they were fooling around. And I have to say, no, you don't. No, you don't. There are solutions. And the solution that I want is I want to get rid of the rape. I want to get rid of the fooling around as teenagers. Because believe it or not, that's also a conviction too. You can't, have, you can't have one conviction like, oh, abortion's wrong, and then you're telling kids, oh, it's okay to have sex. It's okay, it's okay to fool around. It's fine. Oh, that's just accepted. That's just become a social norm. It's just the way it is. I'm terribly sorry. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what the truth source convicts in terms of bringing a conviction to our hearts. I don't have to accept one thing because the other I've just resigned myself to. So my conversation about abortion is always going to be a little bit deeper, a little bit more than just, is it legal, not legal? Should it be done, not done? That is not where the conversation needs to start. The start of a conversation needs to start in, what does the Bible say? How does, it, how does it convict me? What would I stand firm in regardless of agreement or consequences? One more. Critical race theory. This is a big one right now. Critical race theory in, in, in its fullness, just to let you know, it's pretty complicated. There's about five tenets. Can't go through all of them today just because of time. But the general gist of critical race theory is that it believes beyond the social construct of racism, which we know exists, 
the, just the social construct. We'll talk about that in a minute. The systemic issues that remain and have kept sort of history blurred about what really happened, what didn't happen. There are shadow policies, shadow racism. That's Shadow racism is when something did exist intentionally, and then they kind of intentionally pulled the, you know, the intentionality pulled itself out, but the system still remains. You guys with me? The shadow, the remnant is still there. And the fact that it tilts the scale in favor of this majority-minority power structure, especially in the West. All right? Now, this is not new. Just want you to hear this. This is not new. This has been going on since the days of Moses and the days of Noah, right? There's discrimination and prejudice. People have always found a way to divide themselves. And this is usually the case. Let me just go ahead and show you. They always find a way to externally divide themselves based on worth, value, and privilege. And they use gender, race, and class. And if you don't believe that, be a, be a rich uh, white man and tell me something different. Everybody with me? This, is, this has been going on forever. That we div- put worth on and put value in and move you know, privilege around those three things. Gender, race, and the class you're in, the socioeconomic class you're in. See, biblically, there is no justification for racism, and yet it's never stopped this. Critical race theory has lots of layers, and I actually believe in the historical part of some of critical race theory. If somebody has a conversation with me, I usually kind of start there. Well, listen, I, I personally think that we have to historically understand what has happened in our nation. Okay, there, as, as, even as a Christ follower and a biblical, you know, not would call myself a scholar, but someone who studied the Bible, like, we know what, you know, generational sins do. <laughs> it's a problem. Generational sins is a real deal. So the, you know, the wealth gap and the, and the things that, 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 you know, people of color have had to experience because of systems and things that were in place, that's a very real thing. You, to ignore it or to play it down is, I'll just be honest with you, pretty dumb. Because everybody in here has a parent or a grandparent that went to a segregated school and didn't drink water out of the same water fountain as a black person. So it ain't, it ain't that far away. Everybody with me? So, so you can't play it down, but, but here's the deal. The, the, the argument against critical race theory or the issue with critical race theory is the fact, number one, that it's a theory, and number two, that some of its conclusions wants to point you to just another, another more accepted way of dividing over gender, race, and class. And that's a problem. Because we're, we're told we're not supposed to do that. Matter of fact, Christians are, are basically commanded, again, biblical ideals and instructions. This is Paul. That you are all children of God through your faith in Christ. And here's what happens when it changes you. All of us who have been united with Christ in baptism, we put on Christ. It's like putting on new clothes. It's a new identity. It's a new way of uniting to one another. And now there's no longer Jew or Gentile race. There is no longer slave or free class. There is no longer male or female gender, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, Paul says all this because even in the early church, even in the early thing, he was like, you guys are still finding weird ways to divide yourselves. And that's not how it works when you're a Christ follower. There's no room for that. 
right? There's no room. Listen, even though some of the arguments against critical race theory, and just here, this is a big, big conversation. All right? you, can, you can have tons of opinions about it. But when people use it as a tool or the conclusion they come to, right, is that you have to have, you know, sort of more acceptable, allowable discrimination or a prejudice towards privilege, then it's just really reverse racism. And if you don't know what reverse racism is, look it up or come see me later. And again, again, that's not every single person who talks about it, but you have to at least get into the complexity of the fact that that's sometimes how it's being used. And so the arguments are going to come for and against, and should we do this, and should we do that? And here I'm just telling you, I have to walk you back to, where is your conviction? Is it in the Bible, or it is in what you socially think should happen? And there's too many Christians having a conversation about race and what they socially think ought to happen, which is constantly shifting. And you do not have your convictions in what the Bible says. There is no room for racism. It doesn't matter if you're trying to atone. It doesn't matter whether you're trying to bring restitution. There's no acceptable versions of trying to flip majority and minority power struggles in such a way that sort of flips it around and says, well, that way didn't work. It was wrong, but this way it'll work. This is going to be good. This is going to be great. Because, see, listen, all of these things are man-made problems Go to, go to my slide real quick on the restitution. Anytime we're trying to find these restitutions, reparations, or atonement to these man-made problems of racism, they are the solu- these solutions are always going to fall short. Okay, they're always going to fall short. The problem is <laughs> we sort of know they're going to fall short, but something's better than nothing. Can't tell you how many conversations and blogs and articles start with, well, we got to start somewhere. Something's better than nothing. I'm, I can promise you. That is, that is just, that's just, that's such a line of bull leading you towards just trying to have a social or political view and opinion on a situation that aligns with them. You have to have a moral conviction about what you believe in. You can have your, you know, your conversations and share your opinion, but it should not change what you morally believe. Listen, I'm not, I'm going to be for this and I'm going to be for that. And the moment you go that direction, I'm terribly sorry I can't be for it. Terribly Sorry. There's no allowable, excusable version of prejudice that is allowed according to my conviction. So I understand what you're doing in order to find restitution and find atonement and to appease people, but I can't be on board with that. Everybody with me? I'm not telling you what to believe. I'm asking you, where does your conviction lie? Do not settle for your strongly held opinion in social ideology, political views, and your entitlements, when he's called you to a moral, biblical moral conviction around his ideals and instructions. Here's a third one. I, I'm running out of time, but I'm going to give you the third one anyway. You guys okay with the third one real quick? All right, okay, good. Yeah. If you're not, it's okay. I'm still going to go. <laughs> Same-sex marriage. And basically, we're, I'm going to talk about it from the standpoint of legal civil unions in comparison to Christian marriage covenants, okay? The Christian marriage covenant, the way we read it in Scripture, versus what we've just kind of called legal civil unions. I think that's what it was called before marriage was made sort of federally a law, but uh, same-sex marriage was federally a law, but it's, it's, it's basically the way it was described. And I want you to hear this, I, again, in a couple of weeks, we'll let you know in plenty of time in advance, 
In a couple weeks, we're doing a Sunday morning, and listen, it's all things gender, okay? It's all things gender. It's transgender issues, pansexuality, it's uh, binary identities, it's everything. You guys with me? So I can't go too deep in today, but just we're doing that in a couple weeks. So if you have questions that pop up, feel free to give them to me, but we're going to be pushing that. But there is a legal aspect of this. This goes back to the entitlement issue. Now, my moral conviction comes from Genesis and, and, and what basically Jesus repeating what God said. God created human beings in his own image. The image of God, he created them, male and female. This is also part of race, right? And gender, I'm sorry, gender. He created them. This will be part of our gender conversation. God blessed them and they said, be fruitful and multiply. Because there's a purpose to marriage. There's a way that happens, fill the earth and govern it, right? This is part of what he wants to do. Keep going. This is Matthew. This is Jesus, uh, again, repeating what God said. Haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus said, they record that from the beginning of time, God made male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and his mother, and he's joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. By the way, this wasn't a ceremony. This was an act. I think you guys all know what I'm talking about. Okay, all right. Hey, also why there's a biblical conviction we're supposed to have about premarital sex, sex outside of marriage. Anyway, that's too, I can't go there. All right, I don't have time. Okay, we're talking about that in a couple weeks. All right, there we go. Since they're no longer two but one, let no man split apart what God has joined together. Ideals and instructions, the heart of God in terms of marriage and in terms of husbands and wives coming together. And there is a biblical ideal of what this looks like. So in that, same-sex marriage does not apply. Just, just hear that. That's, it doesn't, there's no room for it. It doesn't apply in it. Now, that doesn't change the fact that, you know, there are, there are legal civil unions, and there's, and, there's, and there's arguments and opinions that people have about whether federal or state authority and law and how it should work when it comes to marriage versus the ceremony, right, or the biblical covenant of marriage. And you kind of have to have a global perspective to understand this. I'll give you one quick example. In Kenya, okay, and some of our partners in Kenya, they are already there. I assume we'll be there as the U.S. at some point. But the, the church doesn't marry anybody. Religion doesn't marry anybody. It is a state and federal, you know, tribal uh, thing all by themselves. That's the only thing that matters. However, Christians there will have a Christian covenant ceremony. Because they, you know, again, it's, it has nothing to do with whether it's legal. It's just that they believe in what God, and they have a conviction about what God says about marriage. So they'll step in and say, let's have a biblical marriage. Let's have a Christian ceremony. That may happen in our country. I'm just letting you know. And there's opinions that people have that, 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 that may sound like they conflict with a moral, a, you know, a biblical moral conviction. For example, I had one. This is back when, gosh, Obama was president then. Um, and, it was, back, and it, was the, it was the lawsuit that went to the civil court. It was a hot mess. Um, some guy, you know, had a civil union with, a, with another guy, and they wanted to receive death benefits from, you know, from the insurance company. But the insurance company and the business were discriminating against them, and they said you can't do it, and they sued, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. It should have never went all the way to the Supreme Court. And then this is what was basically used to, to turn it into a federal law, same-sex marriage. And when people asked me about it, they were like, hey, you know, what do you think about that? And I'm just like, this is, they're dumb. You can't discriminate against people based on, you know, based on, I said the state legally joined them. You can't do that. And they'd look at me and they'd be like, oh, you're for gay marriage? No. 
But I'm telling you from, you know, the entitlement standpoint and from the way in which our Constitution reads and the way these things work, I'm telling you that if the state already said that they were married or said there was a civil union, the insurance company, the company can't do that. Now I have the same conversation with the fact that a baker doesn't want to bake a cake for a gay wedding and they want to cancel them and shut them down. I'm just like, no, that's dumb. They can do whatever they want to do. That's their business. Everybody with me? But the problem is, just hear me, if you do not have a moral conviction that is steadfast and is anchored in your source of truth, then it is very hard to have some of those complex conversations that doesn't make you look like you're just this wish-washy thing rolling all about. I told somebody one time that they were asking me if I'd do a, perform a gay, gay uh, marriage ceremony. I said, no. What would you do, their funeral? Absolutely. And they were just like, <sighs> And I said, what, what's wrong with you? One, I, will not aff- I cannot affirm or condone something that I have a biblical conviction against. Now you're telling me I can't bury someone and give them the dignity of a burial and have an opportunity to preach the gospel at a funeral? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Don't be dumb. Right? <laughs> well, you should... Yeah, right, 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 right. Listen, we're going to talk about it in a few weeks. This is a big area of grace and truth that gets really complex. You know, because, you, I mean, listen, we have friends and family members. Oh, my brother, my sister, they married their lesbian thing, and they, oh, they're beautiful, and they adopted a kid, and I love them so much, and they're so sweet, and it's just, and they're living monogamously in this relationship, and I can't imagine how that's not God-honoring, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, look, I get it. You are, you, are, you are 90% grace and no truth. I understand the temptation for that. I also understand the temptation to be 90% truth and no grace, which leaves zero margin for any of the complexity that we understand in this world. And neither one of those are good. Everybody with me? Neither one of those are good. We're not trying to find a balance of it. We're trying to live in the fullness of it. Our biblical convictions have to inform our social ideology, our political views, our, our entitlements, our, our laws, the things we think we have rights to. If we're going to do anything in this, if we're going to get anywhere with this, and again, the same-sex marriage is a big deal. If your brain doesn't, listen, if you, if you start contemplating things like what happens when, my, when this bisexual woman marries a lesbian transgender who was born officially a male, and you, if your brain doesn't hurt thinking through those things, like, you didn't get it. You know what I'm saying? Like, you don't, you don't fully understand. Again, we'll talk about it in a couple weeks. You, you, you're going to have to land somewhere. And you do not have to land where I land, but I'm telling you, if your convictions are not rooted in an absolute truth source, then you're just going to add to the noise. You're never going to make a difference. It's going to add to the noise because you're going to be fighting a balance of grace and truth, and I'm just telling you, you're going to land higher on one side than the other, and it's just going to constantly be a problem. Our call is the fullness of grace and truth. I'm out of time. Let me pray. Father God, this is, this is an incredibly important time for the people in our church. 
that God, you are doing a work to uh, unveil and uncover maybe some beliefs and opinions and views that we have that may not actually may not actually come from you. And God, just give grace and pour truth into us. God, if I if I said anything weird today, just let it pass through your ears. But but God, even with what I said today and the scripture we read today, just challenge our hearts to know what is true, to teach us what is wrong, to equip us and prepare us to live the life and do the work you've called us to live, which means we do it now. We do it in this culture with these landmines, with these issues at hand. We're trusting you for it. We're trusting in your grace. We're trusting your power and provision in our life. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.